Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a quite an amazing story, you know, a story of, you know, how someone, you know, comes here to the U.S. and, and is definitely making it happen. Obviously coming, you know, quite, quite young, but I think that we're going to get into the details. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Roman Pedan. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Alejandro. Thank you. So born in the Ukraine. But uh, obviously, you know, a few years there and, and then it was time to come here and come to the U.S. And I know that that was a little bit bumpy. So how was how was that for you? Obviously, you were a little bit young, but for the family as well. Yeah, you know, I was very young when my parents took a risky and impactful decision to leave the Soviet Union and venture out to try to make it to America. They took a risk to go to a country that they didn't know the language in, they had few friends in, solely for uh, the pursuit of opportunity for myself and my older brother. And that journey involved their having to leave everything behind, a treacherous a journey from Ukraine to Moscow, where the customs agents took most of our things, a period of time when my family was homeless in a town outside of Rome because there were too many refugees like ourselves looking to be close to the U.S. consulate in the hopes of gaining entry into the U.S. And an immense amount of fortitude and determination, finally, when we were granted entry into the U.S. to the north shore of Boston in learning English and finding jobs, retraining from uh, their original professions to the professions that could help make ends meet in the U.S., all in the service of uh, helping me and my brother have the opportunities that we have today. The reason that story matters so much to me uh, is because it is what, a large reason for most of the opportunities that I have and the reason I'm even having this conversation with you, Alejandro. So it's a, it's a meaningful way to remember that many of the things that give us opportunities are outside of our control. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So one thing that I want to ask you here is because I'm sure that that, that phase, you know, for your family, for your parents, uh, obviously, you know, so many struggles, you know, to be able to to come here to the U.S. You know, I'm sure that there was like a before and an after. I'm sure that for them, you know, that had a, a really big impact. Uh, and, and I'm sure that for you, it really influenced who you are today and how you, you know, perhaps uh, look at things. So so how would you say that, that that has made you who you are and perhaps 
impacted your your entrepreneurial drive? Yeah, and for context, the the country we were born in previously, the Soviet Union, wasn't a place that fostered entrepreneurship because it was a communist state. And the circumstances in which we, my family, was living in were very trying. Uh, my father is a, a trained physicist. He has a PhD in physics. My mother has a Russian version of an MBA. And despite those, that, those credentials and that education, we were living one apartment to eight families and one bathroom. And in America, there was, despite the fact that they had to learn a new language and retrain, my father became a statistician. Uh, they were able to better provide for me and my brother in terms of education and housing and opportunities as it relates to college and opportunities thereafter. It has impacted me in a variety of ways. One, to recognize how lucky we are to have the opportunities that uh, are available in a country like the United States. Two, to recognize the value of resources and using uh, the time and money we have in honor of uh, the sacrifices that people before us took to give us those opportunities and the fact that uh, there can be, and the third is the, the, the reality of uncertainty in the world. Before the Soviet Union existed, there was a, uh, a more capitalistic society in Russia and amid communism, a lot of uh, assets were taken from people who previously uh, were very secure in them. And so the real, realization that nothing is certain and that security is also not uh, not always available, even in the most secure times, is one that helps me build a company and also live live my life with a healthy sense of paranoia uh, and focus on reducing a risk constantly. Absolutely, absolutely. And in this case, for you, you grew up in Boston, and definitely very early on, you got into programming. So, so what what was that? You know, encounter with programming. How how did you get into it? Ukraine has a rich engineering culture. And it's almost in the, it might as well be in the constitution that uh, you're required to study some form of engineering or science growing up. When I was four years old, my family may have not been in Ukraine, but that culture stuck with us. And so one of the earliest gifts that I was given was a small computer. And, and this was a meaningful investment for my family to purchase this computer for, for me. It was a is a computer that had a very simple programming language, uh, basic and quick basic, and a manual on how to use it. And I found it endlessly fascinating that I could write a few lines of code and then build something that the computer would act on forever. It was one action of building would cause a forever reaction of uh, usability. And that was extremely fun and exciting, a power that when you're four, five, six, you rarely have in terms of autonomy and impact. And so I, I, I poured a lot of energy into, into learning how to uh, advance that skill. So I started with basic and quick basic, then graduated to visual basic and eventually Java. And the, the core fuel for me was the ability to create and influence uh, a device that then could allow others to, uh, to, to have a feature or a product that they could otherwise not, not have. Much more simple product back then than what I aspire to and am building today. Uh, but uh, still, that feeling of creation was what drove me. So then let's uh, fast forward a little bit, because this uh, obviously, I would say that created that influence and, and that drive and that passion around engineering. And that's uh, definitely what 
push you to get into Penn. I mean, I'm sure that your parents were super proud that you were able to make it into one of the best universities in the world. Yeah, it was it was it was a a really exciting moment of when I pressed the button to see uh, that I was accepted to to the university. Penn really stood out because it, it had that dual focus on both business and engineering on creation and then funneling that creation into a product that can uh, serve others. Uh, and so I was fortunate to be able to study at Penn computer science within the engineering school and finance and real estate within the Wharton school. And as important as the curriculum, the people there were full of entrepreneurial zeal and excitement about learning and then deploying that learning into practical ways. And so it was a very, it was a, it was a very proud moment for my family and a, 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 a very, uh, I was very honored to be able to be part of that kind of ecosystem and with those kinds of peers. And you even got your first entrepreneurial idea there that you executed. So what was what was this company Bookly about? Yeah, so senior senior year we had a, a, a to do a senior project for the for the, uh, the computer science program. And for me, I'd for from freshman to junior year, I've always been frustrated by the amount of uh, time and money it took to buy textbooks. Uh, and I realized others had that issue as well. I was spending twelve hundred dollars a semester on books. That was that happened to be the average amount that everyone, uh, students nationwide, spend it and on on books. And that was rising at a rate far faster than inflation, about ten percent a year. And what I noticed was the bookstore at the school often sold the same book for two times the price than one could buy it online, whether on Amazon or eBay or Valor Books or A Books. And so we built a product, actually my brother and myself built a product called Bookly. Uh, the website was book.ly that allowed students to compare the price of their textbooks against other places that those same textbooks were sold and find a price that often was at least 60% cheaper than in their textbook. Bookly than in their bookstore. Bookly would take a 5 to 10% commission off every sale and students would uh, save 60% on their books. So anywhere between $500 and $700 uh, per semester, a, a meaningful amount of money uh, that they that they would save. So then in this case, I mean, what was your lesson learned after after this experience? I ended up not pursuing Bookly as a full-time uh, career. Uh, we had a we had an offer from a venture firm in Boston. Uh, I actually at the time didn't know what venture was. Uh, and we were had an unsolicited inbound from a, a venture firm based in Boston asking if we wanted to uh, continue pursuing this. And they gave us an offer to uh, to, to fund the fund the, uh, the company. And it was a very difficult decision to not pursue the the venture and instead uh, go uh, go 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 elsewhere. The reason I didn't pursue it was because uh, I, I felt that uh, ebooks were going to solve the problem we were solving in, over the long run. And the second was I had a passion for saving students money, but I didn't have a passion for textbooks themselves. And I recognized that, uh, that I needed to be working on something that I had an intrinsic excitement and passion about to really push it, uh, to, to really be in it for the long run, uh, in terms of building a business and a really impactful product. And so one of the lessons was I should try to deeply understand what, what has impact and also what combines that impact with the passion that I uh, fervently hold. So then let's talk about your next rodeo, because next after this, you did a little bit of private equity, you know, first in Chicago, then joining KKR, one of the best uh, private equity firms out there. 
with the likes of Blackstone and so forth. But, you know, I'm sure that, you know, this was a very interesting segue into you doing your, your MBA and then actually really going full at it as an entrepreneur. But I'm sure that the experience of being on the investment side, you know, perhaps shaped a little bit more your view. Uh, and, and I'm sure that it taught you a few lessons in terms of how to execute and how to operate a business. So what, what can you share with us as to, you know, what was, you know, that perhaps background or, or fundamental building block that he gave you, like being on the investment side? Yeah. And I was, I was very fortunate to be among incredibly talented, passionate, capable, and uh, determined team members, both at Walton Street Capital in Chicago and KKR in New York. Walton Street attracted me out of uh, Penn because it was such an entrepreneurial place. It was a small number of investment professionals who were deploying billions of dollars of capital in an industry that I loved, real estate, uh, buying either real estate companies or assets like hotels, apartments, uh, industrial buildings, warehouses, and, and, and shopping malls, among others. And I was fueled by the amount of, of responsibility that as a young investment professional, we were given. One of my formative memories was helping Walton Street evaluate whether opening an office in Brazil right before, right as Brazil was gaining momentum in uh, 2011 and 2012 was a good idea. And the lessons I learned both in that experience and other investment experiences at Walton Street was around uh, rigor in analysis, understanding comprehensively the, micro, uh, the, the business at a micro level, but all the, also the macro factors uh, that in, impact the business. But as importantly, uh, it's, the lessons I learned were around risk and not just about understanding risk, uh, what kinds of risk is a building or a business exposed to, but thinking through how to reduce risk with every step that a business or physical real estate investment takes. Most of our investments uh, had a thesis on how we were going to improve a, a company or a property, whether it be redeveloping it or improving the company's efficiencies, but also how we're going to reduce risk over time. And that systemic approach to reducing risk really uh, is a lesson that I have carried today towards building uh, uh, the company uh, at, at Kafe. So why Stanford? I mean, obviously, it seemed that uh, here you were now collecting the badges of honor. I mean, I, I'm sure that your parents just, just couldn't believe what they were watching. I mean, one of their sons just uh, getting in, like, one, from one of the greatest schools to another even, you know, amazing school. Uh, what was, I guess, what was the segue? Why? Why an MBA at this point? Yeah, maybe I can take you back to leaving Walton Street Capital to joining KKR because the reasons I joined KKR was also some of the reasons why I was so excited about Stanford. Uh, KKR, this amazing institution, uh, was just creating its real estate team when I joined as a seventh member. Nine months before I joined, that team didn't exist. And I was excited to help build a business within an institution alongside other professionals who had deep experience building businesses in their past. And so I saw this as an opportunity to learn from the best in how to scale a, uh, a, a business. We, and, and I saw that happen in spades. We, I joined the team with 
seven member as a seventh member, and we uh, over a period of three years uh, grew the team to almost a hundred people uh, globally, uh, and then went from uh, almost no investments, one shopping mall in uh, Chicago, to nearly ten billion dollars of assets under management, and the experience, the thrill of, and the ability to contribute to that growth was a real honor and something that I wanted to learn from the best about, but then hoped upon joining KKR that I'd be able to use those learnings to help again build uh, myself. And so as the KKR was transitioning from this amazing growth phase, uh, from a startup to a more stable real estate business, uh, we, it felt like the right time to go to a, a place like Stanford that so much fostered entrepreneurship and the uh, spirit of building uh, to, uh, to, to, to try to take those learnings and apply them in a, in, in, in a venture of my own. So then let's talk about, let's talk about Stanford because obviously Stanford is like the holy grail of entrepreneurship. So here you land in Stanford, you obviously had that entrepreneurial spirit uh, and it was uh, obviously seated with the way that your family, you know, like had to uh, come to the U.S. and really, you know, like uh, created a future for themselves. And then on the way that you continue to go, you already had, you know, done your, your first uh, small rodeo uh, in, in college. But, but, but tell us about that moment where you really realize that there is something uh, that you want to do, uh, you were already so, you had already some exposure in the in the travel space and with your stints with with putting your stuff on Airbnb and things like that. But but how did you really incubate you know this this idea, which is your your recent company, and how did you go about like bringing it to life? Because it was pretty much at the time that you were in Stanford. Yeah, I started Casa between my first and second year at Stanford. And what, what CASA does is democratize travel in many ways. It offers guests a place to stay that is well-priced in great locations and is trustworthy. Think of us as the best of Airbnb and hotels. From Airbnb, we uh, take the uh, attractive prices that Airbnb offers in the uh, great locations and ample space, but we are the host versus on Airbnb, there are 5 million different hosts. And so we can offer and deliver trust. Uh, the impetus for uh, the idea actually came from living in New York, working at KKR, and Airbnb being a apartment in in New York City. And it was I, I was living this cognitive dissonance where we were deploying capital, uh, quite a bit of capital, billions of dollars to buy hotels uh, that stood for the old way that people traveled. And at the same time, I was hosting and staying in Airbnbs myself. And noticing that increasingly people wanted a different experience in their travel. And it was hard to, 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 to mesh the fact that we were spending so much time on something that seemed like it wasn't the wave of the future. It seemed like the textbooks that I was focused on in the past and that the new way was driving more and more growth and more and more changes in travel and yet was missing a key component, which was reliability and trust on the Airbnb Side. And so that was the core idea behind starting uh, CASA. I started the company uh, with that core idea between my first and second year. I, I had an internship. I had, I, my, my essay into Stanford was actually, I want to innovate in, in real estate and combine my technology, love for technology and my love for, for real estate. And so I sought out pretty broad range of companies and ideas 
involving hospitality and real estate and technology in combination. Uh, I was I, I, in the summer that I started at Casa, I actually had an internship at a company called Juniper Square, which at the time had three people. Now is uh, I think raised a Series C is valued at, and it had appreciated an incredible amount. Um, and they had an amazing team, an amazing product, and I, re I I found that myself not being drawn towards what uh, they were doing as much as the idea that ha I had uh, felt so strongly about while Airbnb in my apartment. And so, in the initial impetus for Casa uh, was to try it. Let's let's see if this actually will 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 work. And uh, initially, that meant going out to apartment owners in the Bay Area and asking if we could run a small hotel in their apartment building. Uh, and we got a immense number of no's uh, from uh, apartment the apartment community. So much so that we had to change our pitch. And finally, one apartment owner, a large owner in the Bay said yes, and said, yes, we have a new development here in the peninsula of the Bay Area, where we can give you four apartment units that uh, you uh, can run your professional hospitality operation in. Uh, and But because you're new, we need you to do this extremely quickly. So they said on Tuesday, you you, you can do this. Thursday will be the start of your agreement, and Sunday you'll have first guest. And so those first days of getting the apartments ready uh, without having much of a plan uh, in terms of how to furnish those apartments or what even to put in them involved a 2 a.m. scramble to find a truck on Craigslist that could go to Ikea to find furniture that we could deploy into the apartment, uh, a, uh, a credit line from JP Morgan Chase, really a, a credit card that they gave me that financed that, that furniture, which was personally guaranteed by, by me. And then three days of uh, sleeping on the floor of the apartment units that we were building because we didn't have beds yet set up while trying to set up AT&T internet and insurance and uh, get all the furniture ready. We had guests check in on all four first apartments on that Sunday, and they had no idea the chaos that came before just an hour before the, their, their, uh, the, the check-in. But they had a great experience in those first uh, units. They had a pro those stays were profitable, and that led us to have confidence in the initial four uh, units and MVP. In some ways, in quotes, the MVP for Casa that that we we embarked on. So then, let's say let's talk about like what was the what were the early days of of Casa then? What what were they like? So we had those four initial units. We had the initial guests that stayed with us. They had a great experience and they left us amazing feedback and good reviews that led to more guests, uh, which, uh, and again, those next guests were profitable too. And so we started to reinvest those profits into growing the business. So we started with four apartments, and then we grew to 18 uh, apartments, and then we grew to 32, all initially in the Bay Area. At the time, I was still in my second year at Stanford. We were building this without raising outside funds. And so didn't have the budget to hire a 24-7 customer service team. And that meant that if you were staying in a casa and called our number, you were reaching my cell phone and I would duck out of class uh, and help you check in or answer your question. Uh, and at 32 hotel rooms, that became quite, uh, quite burdensome. But it was also very important because by living in those details, uh, the details of, of, the, of the guests, I understood what parts of our of our experience resonated and what parts did uh, did not. Uh, and 
as we as I after graduating, we continued to grow organically. We took a focused on we we made a conscious decision that we wouldn't raise money until we had answered core assumptions behind the business and removed important risks around product market fit and the ability the economic model and the ability to grow. And so we saw the number of units grow from 32 to 65 to near 100. And one day we woke up and we had operations in three states, in Illinois, Texas, and California, with a team of almost 20. We hadn't raised money. We were fortunately able to pay down the large uh, credit card debt that we initially incurred. And we had to make a choice as to what our next steps were around uh, raising capital and growing the business. So then let's talk about raising capital, because obviously you guys um, you know, have raised quite a bit of capital for the business. At what point, you know, do you decide, you know, hey, you know, let's take some money now? Because, I mean, it took you uh, a little bit before before you actually decided to to really make, you know, the, the move and get some outsiders to come in and invest. So so what would you say prompted that? Yeah, Alejandro, I, I, I really admire the legacy of entrepreneurs in America who started their businesses without raising capital for a very long time. Uh, I think Sam Walton, when he when he grew Walmart, uh, or Phil Knight, uh, when he grew Nike, and many others uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, who built their businesses without raising significant outside capital. And there's something elegant and self-sustaining about building a business uh, that doesn't require outside capital initially for it to uh, to exist. Um, we we spent we we took a focused approach to building the business in that way up until a point. And so at about 100 units spread across uh, nine buildings in eight cities, we realized that our operation needed deep investment in technology in order to continue to, to grow. We were operating a hotel that never existed before. Uh, in a very, it, our, our hotel had 100 rooms spread across nine different cities, uh, nine different buildings in eight different cities. Uh, typically, a hotel has 300 rooms with uh, in one city and 300 staff that operated it. We had only 15 to 20 uh, people operating 100 rooms. And so the software systems and the operating systems that existed on the market were not well suited for the type of operation that we were building. And that type of operation was very core to our competitive advantage and our ability uh, to sustain that advantage over time. Uh, so to, in order to build that system, we'd need to pull up a hefty capex, a hefty amount of capital expenditure in order to deploy into the technology that allows us to operate hotels in a very different way than the systems that exist do. And so we raised the uh, series seed in December 2018 of about $6.3 million in order to uh, build that technology. And we supplemented it with a series A in December 2019 of about $20 million in order to continue building that system while growing our number of units and our operation over time. Okay, so then obviously, you know, quite a, a bit of money that, that you guys uh, raise here. So what is the total amount that you guys have raised to date? We have raised uh, about $55 million to date. $55 million. And I know that, you know, for, for anyone, right? I mean, COVID has been a, has been a killer, uh, especially for the travel industry. I mean, I know that, in this case, for you guys, it was very intense. You know, you saw cancellations, you know, going from zero to 25%, revenue dropping by over 70%. I mean, crazy, crazy times. I mean, I'm sure that those were very, very dark times for you guys. So so what kind of uh, course correction or, 
or things you were able to do to really deal with this uncertainty? Yeah, Alejandro, when, when we raised our Series A in December 2019, I can promise you that a massive 100-year pandemic was not in any of our risks nor in any of our pitch materials. Uh, so when March hit only three months later, uh, it was an incredibly, incredibly difficult time. And let me take you back to that. You, you alluded to it. We saw uh, we were looking at our occupancy numbers and we saw them going from 70 percent to 60 to 50 to 40 to 35. And sitting in our shoes, we were tracking this by the hour, not knowing where the bottom will be. We saw our uh, revenue drop, as you pointed out, by 75 percent. We had a term sheet from a debt provider pulled at the last moment uh, to that was going to deliver to us significant capital. And we later find out that it was pulled because they had funded a company in our sector that was close to uh, going bankrupt and ultimately ultimately did. And at, at, at that moment of intense uncertainty, we had to, uh, we had to act very quickly in order to uh, both stabilize the business, but in the ideal, uh, find opportunities in, 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 in all of the mayhem. The first order of business was to stabilize things. And we did, we did two main things. One, we worked with our property partners, uh, who are a really key stakeholder for us, the owners of the buildings that Casa, uh, partners with and where we have units. And we re, uh, and we realigned incentives in our agreements with them. And so we needed to, we thought going into those conversations that we'd be able to negotiate one or two agreements, uh, maybe 5%, 10% of the agreements. And we were able to accomplish uh, renegotiation of 90% of our agreements. And that demonstrated the trust that we had built to that point with our property partners, as well as uh, their belief in what we can deliver to them in terms of income and risk reduction over a long period of time. And the second thing we did was on the marketing side. So previously we had people who were road warriors, business travelers staying with us as a majority of our guests, traveling for anywhere between five to seven nights uh, in, in, in our stays. And we re-engineered our marketing effort to attract longer stays, uh, to attract uh, essential workers and traveling nurses. And our, we saw as a result of those efforts, our average length of stay increased from five to seven days to 15 to 20 days. We saw a different customers type with a reduction in business travelers and an increase in essential workers and families. And our occupancy, we had dropped all the way down to 35%, started climbing to 40, 50, 60, and eventually got back to 70% uh, very early on in, in May uh, and, and, and then has stayed at that level since then. So that was step one, stabilize the business. The, the second step was there was a lot, a lot of uh, turbulence in the hospitality and travel industry. We saw companies in a, what was a very crowded field start to have trouble. And in many cases, they, they ended up closing shop. And we admired the entrepreneurs who were building those companies and were excited to be peers for them. So we by no means uh, were, 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 were glad to see that happen. But we also knew that on the other side, when those companies uh, were going under, uh, that the owners that those companies were partnered with would be left without an alternative for furnished inventory in their apartment buildings. And so we went out to owners and said that, and, and in many cases, owners came to us as well and, and said, we can, we can help you take what would be empty space that is uh, hard, to, hard to make any money on and we can start operating it. So we saw actually significant growth in the number of units and the number of markets that we were open in. And that led to 
uh, by the end of the year, our revenue had uh, doubled a year on year. Our number of markets had increased from, uh, I believe, 28 to 35 markets in the United States. And we had uh, nearly doubled the number of units we had open. Um, so we went from this insane euphoria uh, of, or not euphoria, but excitement about what a fundraising round of Series A could be to the depth of crisis in March. And then through an intensity of work on behalf of our, on, uh, from our team and partnership from our partners, uh, and, and, and a, a lot, a lot of, uh, of effort to re-engineer our product, we started to see growth again and strength as the, um, as the year drew to the end in 2020. So I'm sure that, you know, there's a lot of people listening now that, you know, that, that they're going to be encountering eventually uh, a, mon a moment of uncertainty, a dark situation with the business. I guess that for you, uh, this situation, I'm sure that it armed you with the experience now of, of dealing with this type of situations, but then also in the analysis and also in the way in which you really develop a plan to, to, to face whatever you have in front of you. So I guess, you know, what have you learned from this experience, from these tough moments uh, that perhaps you can share with the folks that are listening so that perhaps they can take a page out of it and implement it in their own journeys when they have to face, you know, one of those uh, similar situations. Because every business eventually is going to face, you know, the downs as well as the ups. So when they're really looking at the downs, you know, how, how in this case, you know, what did you learn? Yeah, I think I, I, in, in those situations, I think the best thing to do is throw out the normal life best practice playbook. Um, I, I and instead focus only on the essential life support uh supporting functions for a business so for for example uh during that time i took away some of the things that i normally do that are really good practice like having one-on-ones with all direct reports that were pre-scheduled instead we went to an ad hoc model where we'd meet multiple times per day but removed our pre-scheduled meetings uh we uh we had board meetings with our our board nearly every single a uh, week, in some cases, three, four times a week in order to align on direction. Uh, but as, uh, but, but as importantly, there was an enormous number of things that we said no to. And so one of those was the distraction of having to do too much in terms of reducing costs at the company. We heard a lot of companies that were renegotiating every single contract that, that they had. And we said, we wouldn't do that. Instead, we knew that 20% of our contract represented 80% of our entire expense spend. And so anytime someone mentioned a contract that was outside of those 20%, we would refocus their energy on those on those 20. All, all of our efforts were aligned and driving towards the most impactful uh, things on the expense side. So that was what led us to, and that, and for us, the agreements with our property partners were the most impactful things. So we, we avoided going through line by line uh, every single expense and instead focused on the most important. On the, on the, on the marketing side, we did the same. There were a thousand ideas that were thrown out on how we can, uh, we can ensure growth. And we picked three of them, uh, and, and focused our, all of our energies on targeting specific folks who we thought would need Casa more than ever in a new world and, and avoided and ignored everything else. Some of the time, some of that meant ignoring things that were best practices in marketing or in organizations such as the, the one-on-ones that were, we now have brought back or in, 
you know, cost reduction efforts where you want to make sure you speak to all vendors eventually. Uh, but that focus was essential in a moment of crisis and saying no to things that uh, were important, but perhaps not uh, crucial uh, and critical was, was, was the lesson that we would want to repeat going forward if we ever had that kind of crisis again. Absolutely. So I guess, uh, you know, one of the one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show that I that I like to ask you too is if you had the opportunity to go into a time machine. And I mean, it's incredible your journey and and all the things that you have experienced and also endured as a as an entrepreneur. If you could go back in time and and have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Roman that is thinking about maybe launching a business. I mean, knowing what you know now, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would tell yourself and why before launching a company? Perhaps I would go to Roman in 2018, 2019 and whisper that there is going to be a massive pandemic in 2020 and to prepare for it as best as one can. If, that, if that's an acceptable answer, that's what that's, that's <laughs> it. In, in all seriousness, I think one of the pieces of advice that I think is a really good one that I heard often uh, but that I disagree in many instances is uh, trying to be as high level as possible uh, as a leader. So delegating as much as possible, looking at things that, uh, you know, at a thousand feet rather than at, 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 at in, in the micro level. And I agree that it's very important to create leverage in an organization and uh, provide autonomy for leaders on the team. But I also think it's important to complement that high level view with uh, a level of being in the details that is usually not prescribed by best practice. Uh, and an example of that is a recent road trip that I did from uh, San Francisco to Boston, uh, where I stayed in casas along the journey with in, at every stop. Uh, and I, I stayed in, 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 in casas. And during that trip, I actually had a few bad experiences checking into our own units. And one of our core promises as casa is a seamless check-in experience and a clean room, uh, a, a level of trust that you can't get when there are 5 million different hosts delivering hospitality and that you can promise as CASA as the single host on the, on the CASA platform. But on my trip, I had a bunch of problems with check-ins, which was quite disheartening. But as a result of that, uh, those sets of issues, I, I started to dig into what was causing it. And I realized that I was checking in every single time at night often past midnight, always after 10 p.m. And we realized that, uh, that there were certain changes that happened in our building that only occurred after 10 p.m. and in some cases in our systems after midnight. And so that allowed us to diagnose a problem that when looking at things at a high level were very hard to see in the data unless you knew precisely where to look and what to look because these problems only appeared in certain buildings and at, at certain times. And by being in the details, we were able to discover those problems and solve them so that we can live uh, and deliver on the promise of trustworthy check-ins and trustworthy stays. But that was, that was for me living in the details, but that lesson I try to emphasize to our team, where it's important to complement being at a high level with getting into the weeds so that you can provide texture and understanding to the data that you're seeing. And often that texture allows you to look into the data and find the patterns that you'd otherwise not be able to find. So often best practice and the advice you're given is uh, stay high level, look at the data, but often getting into the details, experiencing the nitty gritty of your product uh, is really crucial to actually seeing systemic improvement at an organization. 
So that's that's pretty profound, uh, Roman. You know, I'm sure that there's a lot of people listening now that are wondering how they can reach out and say hi. What would you tell them? Yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, so my email is roman uh, at casa, spelled with a K, dot com. So R-O-M-A-N at casa dot com with a K. Amazing. Well, Roman, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Alejandro, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.